Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Agriculture Conversation on the Langcast Ag Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Lane Northland. Today, our guest is president of the Montana Natural Resources Coalition, and he's also a Fergus County commissioner from the state of Montana. And the new coalition is announcing a general release of a report that deals with federal grazing districts for wildlife rewilding. The ground zero in this effort is the request by the American Prairie Reserve in north central Montana to convert BLM grazing leases from traditional livestock production to indigenous animal or bison uses. The report is a reasoned response, the group says, to this action as well as provides for the appropriate process that must be followed when making such requests. Basically, they're asking federal agencies to follow the law, the agency's own law, in making a determination for federal grazing of bison. Don't go too far. Ross Butcher is our guest. We'll be back after this message. You're still raising cattle, and we're still standing with you. The National Cattlemen's Beef Association was the first to call for an investigation into the cattle markets after the Holcomb plant fire in 2019. And we were the first to expand the investigation after COVID-19 hit the industry. We work across all levels of government, ensuring you have the freedom and the flexibility to operate with confidence. Help develop the policy that moves the beef industry forward. Join NCBA and add your voice to that of 25,000 ranchers who are still raising cattle. All right, friends, thanks for staying with us here today, joining the Agriculture Conversation on the Lancast Ag Podcast. Uh, As promised, is Fergus County Commissioner Ross Butcher on the phone. He's actually the president of the Montana Natural Resources Coalition. And the topic of today's uh, discussion is an analysis of federal grazing here in the United States, specifically in north central Montana, and issues that are arising with uh, nonprofit groups up in that region of the state. Um, uh, but first off, Ross, before we really uh, dive into the meat of the conversation, could you talk a little bit about what is the Montana Natural Resource Coalition and, and why is it standing up for the uh, uh, issues like the Taylor grazing districts and, and rights when it comes to that end of things? But how did the Montana Natural Resource Coalition come about? Well, thanks, Lane. Uh, you know, there was a, a, a grassroots movement in our county and really in our this north central region of Montana that sprung up here in the last few years, um, being very concerned about the activity of some of these uh, nonprofit, uh, you know, conservation groups that have moved in and they're buying up of land and, 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 you know, the disruption or the concern of disruption to our agriculture communities. And the the commissioners in these counties um, have found themselves kind of out there. We're, you know, we're a, a, a voice for the community, um, but we have a position within, you know, the federal uh, mandates that, that govern federal land management that, that they include local government in the decision-making process. And so we're, we're given this position, but sometimes it's difficult because uh, it feels like we're very disjointed. Um, and uh, it, it was just a, a conversation had with different counties and their commissioners saying, you know, we, we really need to look at some way that we can pull together and, and utilize our resources because they're very limited. How do we do this so that we can better represent our, our local communities um, and, and deal with this this bigger uh, uh, threat that that we perceive here in our area, and so that was kind of the start of it. And and 
through some discussions with, uh, you know, some other other states, actually, you know, the this Natural Resource Coalition is not a new thing. It's been done before. There's a Kansas Natural Resource Coalition um, that has been very effective in dealing with federal land issues. And and uh, and that was kind of the model that we've we've looked at. And uh, so that's that's where it started from. It was really just a conversation amongst uh, local elected officials saying, you know, can we join together? Can we uh, build a coalition that uh, speaks uh, to the water, the the wider uh, uh, audience there? And of course, uh, if you drive throughout central Montana and really all parts of the state uh, along uh, roads, highways, where, wherever you might be, there, there is a lot of uh, uh, signs that say save the cowboy out across the countryside. Um, um, and it also has on the bottom stop uh, the American Prairie Reserve. And uh, I get asked a lot of questions. Uh, a lot of the time here in Bozeman, to my my opinion of the American Prairie Reserve, since uh, they are located here in Bozeman, and um, I, I guess that we could say this uh, coalition actually kind of came from a grassroots level of uh, of people raising awareness about uh, the acquisition of private land, but more importantly, uh, the changes that uh, this nonprofit group wants to. Uh, uh, see take place on federal grazing permits as well. Could you maybe talk about that grassroots effort and bringing awareness about uh, uh, all these issues that we're going to discuss here today in this uh, uh, pretty much a, a letter to uh, appointed officials in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a perfect example of the uh, the American spirit at play. You know, that it's the, the citizen rises up and puts their voice out there. This is a, you know, a nation that's of the people. And uh, this is just a perfect uh, example of that where um, some uh, really they were, you know, they were ranch wives sitting around a table saying, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? We've seen this happening um, in in Phillips County, north of us, you know, the, the growth of of this uh, this organization. Um, and the havoc that it was wreaking there, and all of a sudden they buy into uh, North Northern Fergus County, and uh, and they were you know very concerned, and and that's you know really what spawned the the Save the Cowboy movement, and it really is a movement. Uh, we have folks that uh, are interested and and supportive from across the the, the state. Um, but that is who really spoke to their elected local officials and said, hey, you need to do something. And, uh, and of course, you know, we can only work within the support that we have from our constituents. And so we really had that. I feel that. I, you know, I know that um, that is, you know, that that organization really does speak for um, the, the culture and the, the, uh, uh, the history of this area and especially our economy. Um, but yeah, they've done a great job of, of bringing that awareness of, of this issue because a lot of people, it's amazing to me, still don't know who the American Prairie Reserve is. And, um, and the, you know, like a lot of those things, the, the, they sound good on the surface. Um, you know, it sounds like somebody that's trying to preserve and, and save what we have, but they overlook the very fact that there's people here. And these people that have been here, the reason it's the way it is. Uh, who, who are you saving it from? You know, our communities take pride in, in, you know, in our environment and, and who we are as a community. And we don't, you know, we don't really need to be saved, you know, please uh, allow us to, to live our lives. We'll, we'll do, we've done a good job so far. We'll continue to do a good job. Thank you very much. 
and uh, that attitude and and drive from the from the local folks is what what gives us our our uh, ability as local officials to actually act in in uh, in their interests. So um, yeah, the the Save the Cowboy uh, group is uh, very active and very involved and is a great resource now for us as local elected officials to to help uh, in in these concerns. Now, uh, as a host of this podcast, I really didn't do a very good job of setting up uh, what what uh, the American Prairie Reserve is, uh, Ross. Uh, so I gotta gotta shame myself right there. But uh, maybe for our listeners that are are, are not familiar with the APR, or uh, for our friends that are from out of state that uh, aren't familiar with with this group, could you give an overview about uh, who this group is, uh, what their goal is, and how they receive uh, their funding? Sure. Um, you know, the American Prairie Reserve, uh, more from the American Prairie Foundation, um, which was a, uh, uh, I believe, an offshoot of the World Wildlife uh, Fund. Um, but they're, they're a nonprofit that fits kind of in the category of, of conservation groups um, and are part of the big conservation network of, of uh, nonprofits out there. And, you know, they had a specific vision of transforming three and a half million acres here in central, north central Montana um, into a, a wildlife preserve specific for bison. Um, however, their, their reach goes beyond that. They really are looking for um, increasing and, and encouraging uh, the, uh, the apex predators. Um, you know, they, they have a, a vision of sort of pre-Lewis and Clark era, you know, uh, uh, look here on the prairie, which, you know, is, is enticing to a lot of people if you don't live here. And, uh, and, and their funding, of course, is international. You know, they, they get large sums of money from uh, Germany. And, you know, so there's a there's a uh, European interest in it. Um, there's They've got money from the Saudis. There's money that have come in from all over, but as far as the actual dollars, it's it's like nine donors have uh, have provided 80% of their funding. So it's a small, very ultra wealthy group that that is funding this this operation, um, and uh, but they've definitely tied into the bigger picture of a rewilding concept of large portions of really the entire world, but definitely the Western United States. And so, you know, that's that's who they are, um, you know, and it's always important to, to try to separate the individual personalities and folks that are with them. There's, you know, I, I know some of the folks that work with the APR and they as individuals are, are fine people. However, the goals of their organization they work for is counter to um, everything that I think we stand for here in central Montana um, as a rural agrarian um, community. And, uh, I, I, you know, I feel that my role is to help support and look after those folks that live in these areas that are being affected. Uh, also, uh, when we see these signs, uh, save the cowboy, stop the American Prairie Reserve, I, I've always said there should be a little asterisk on that too, that says, don't sell your land to the American Prairie Reserve because I and I think that's an important thing to point out here is that you're not attacking this group the coalition is not going after 
private property rights uh, at the end of the day. What they're looking at is the federal grazing permits that come with these ranches that the APR has purchased, and they would like to see a change in livestock uh, determination to graze on those uh, uh, on those allotments. Um, am I correct in saying that? Yes, and I, I do think that's important because that was one of those that was thrown at at us, especially as you know, being conservative in in uh, ideology, I suppose, is that we were somehow attacking their private property rights, and you know that you you stated it. The issue here is is if if they really met their at least initial intended goal, which is three and a half million acres, less than a half a million acres of that, if I if I have my numbers right, it's somewhere in that range would actually be privately deeded land. The rest of it would be federal lands and state lands, but public lands in, in essence. And so really they're leveraging everybody's resource for their, their gain. And I go back to the purpose of those federally reserved lands, which is uh, for the ag in, in, uh, industry, specifically for grazing. Most of these lands went through a designation called chiefly valuable for grazing, determination and that's that's what they were reserved for and they're looking to change that reservation so yeah it's it's really about um the public lands that have been set aside for the sole purpose of maintaining our uh safe and and national uh protected food supply which i i often say you know i understand that uh that uh, energy independence is a is a national security issue I will also say that in the very same vein, so is a nationally secured food supply absolutely in a is a national security issue. A nation that can't feed itself is beholden to somebody, and I just don't think that's a good position to be in. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, get to the meat of the topic here, Ross. Of course, uh, the Montana Natural Resource Coalition has put a, a lot of effort into uh, researching and looking at the laws that are on the books. And this isn't something where, yeah, we can go down to the stockyards or, or uh, the, the bar in Winifred or, or, or the GN Cafe in Malta and, and complain about these issues. But the coalition that, that was really uh, uh, arose from the, the grassroots level of the Save the Cowboy campaign, uh, they're not just sitting around uh, uh, complaining about this issue. They're, they're looking at what they can do to protect uh, the multi-use of public lands and what are the laws on the book. And the coalition has worked with many legal experts to uh, uh, to author the, this is a long title, folks, bear with me, the Repurposing of Federal Reserved Taylor Grazing Districts for Wildlife Rewilding, a Statutory Administrative and Legal Analysis. Um, it, uh, in total, is over 100 pages when you uh, put uh, the appendix and everything on there looking at all these laws. But, uh, Ross, could you walk us through how this document came about, the purpose of it, the recommendations of it, the legal and administrative issues that have uh, arisen in it, and really who it's written for uh, when we look at how our public lands are being uh, administered, how maybe they're not being administered uh, appropriately under the law. Could you walk us through that? Sure. And, you know, and this this was a uh, a report that was, um, you know, funded by the Save the Cowboys group to provide um, for the the coalition 
um, a document where we could go back and not just say, hey, we don't like what you're doing. This is an opportunity to go back and say, listen, you know, we know that you as federal land uh, agency managers are, are trying to you know, follow the, the, the precepts of, of your position and, and authority. Um, however, some things have gotten lost through the, through the years in your policy manuals. You need to go back and really understand where your authority lies and what the directive is. So that was, you know, that was where it started. But it was really about um, the, the APR put in uh, for a change of use on 18 grazing allotments uh, that would – would change them from traditional grazing to uh, livestock or to uh, bison. They were looking to remove the interior fencing and a lot of the uh, uh, mechanical improvements, like the fencing and the and the water and so on, that the producers through the years that had that had utilized and taken care of these lands um, under the under the, uh, the the watchful eye of the BLM and the range management specialists had come up with. You know, this is how we make you know meet the criteria of the multi-use and sustained yield concept within these lands. And so, um, there's been a lot of years of range management and science in the in the development of how these lands were managed. And now they were asking to change that and go back to basically a, a an unmanaged their claim you know natural uh, activity of large grazing ungulates like bison to to manage it uh of course the neighbors all said you know we've been around long enough to know what happens when we have neighbors with with buffalo uh you know it's it's always a a a battle to try to keep your domestic livestock herds um safe from the the you know the bison Uh, when they decide to come over and see your cows it's pretty hard to stop them and so you know there, there was just a lot of concern with the local producers in that area about how this was going to happen. So the, you know, the, the individuals and, and county, you know, local county uh, government at those time had started questioning and, and, uh, you know, uh, putting in comments about the process. And at some point, because there was enough pushback on enough concerns, the APR had sent an unofficial letter to the BLM that stated uh, you know, we're going to re- withdraw our 18 allotments. We're down to, I believe, it's six allotments now, so it was a smaller ask. Um, and we're just going to kind of play with that, see where we go. The BLM picked that up, and right now they're in the process of determining whether they issue these new grazing permits uh, for uh, a, a different purpose, right, for the purpose of raising or running uh, buffalo on it or bison on it versus domestic livestock. Um, so that was that's what really triggered this amongst the producers and the Save the Cowboy group because they understood the the ramifications of these changes to these allotments. So there's a lot of a lot of legal points that have come up, um, and and we might get into some of those. But as far as the the repurposing report, when that went, you know, we when we uh, asked for this to be researched and and to come up with an answer of what you know where are concerns at and and are they are these agencies uh, in line with the authority uh, to make these decisions? Um, that's where this repurposing report came from. And there again, the, the, you know, the probably the biggest ask that we came up that we said, you know, that, that we as the Montana natural resource coalition came up with when we handed this off to um, the BOM was 
where is their compatibility analysis that evaluates whether um, or if these rewilding initiatives are compatible with congressional mandates, land use statutes, executive orders, administrative regulations, or other policies of the United States? Have you done the compatibility analysis? And what we generally get is, well, that, that's part of our EA process. And, and, and that's and environmental assessment, saying, just, just for our listeners out there. An, there. Yep. Right. And an environmental assessment is kind of the lowest bar as far as how they do it. If, if, if it gets pushed you know, farther, they may have to do an environmental impact statement, which is a much bigger lift, a whole lot more involved in it. Um, and, and honestly, we're not looking to make every time somebody wants to change uh, a, 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 you know, the, the management's practices within their allotment that they have to do an EIS because that would be ridiculous. However, we're saying this is a this is a big enough lift that there needs to be, you know, a full EA done, which includes this compatibility analysis. And this is one of those places where I believe the policy um, has slipped away from the intent of the original language uh, in in their in their uh, management. This is a point where they really need to follow through and do this compatibility analysis because that brings in to question all of the points of that the neighbors bring up about if you allow um, 500 head or 200 head or however many head of buffalo run out in here, how are you gonna how are you gonna separate them from my livestock herd? How are you gonna protect it? Are you actually gonna manage these this livestock? I right now there's the APR has no real management plan. So you can theoretically end up with 50-50 split between bulls and, and cows. Well, that doesn't work very well. There's a reason why people that raise livestock manage the number of, of bulls they have in their herd. Uh because at some point those bulls uh there's a there's a good percentage of them are not gonna get in the action and they're gonna go somewhere and it's gonna go to the neighbors. There's some really specific boots on the ground issues that the neighbors have to deal with, and that's where the compatibility analysis requires that they answer that question. Is it compatible with the purposes? Um, we see that there is there's some um, discussion about that within the BLM about what do they follow. Uh, the federal the the federal uh, uh, statutes, Taylor Grazing Act, and so on, um, list what what is considered livestock in the eyes of the federal government and buffalo are not them. Um, you know, it's cattle, burros, sheep, goats, llamas. I can't remember specific, but it's not buffalo. And the, the BLM here, uh, has said, well, the state of Montana recognizes buffalo as livestock. So we're going to accept that. That's one of our points in saying, you know, where do you have the authority to accept a state's definition of livestock? I, I don't believe they have that authority to do it. Um, I realize it's kind of getting into the minutia, but this this is the point is they have to go back to the documents that give them the authority to make management decisions, and their policies need to reflect those. And so this, this rewilding report that we had pointed out a lot of those deficiencies in the management that's happening right now. And, um, you know, and, and I've had uh, some, you know, some of the folks – on the ground in the BLM that were very interested in this because they don't spend a lot of time going back and reading the Taylor Grazing Act and saying specifically does this fit or doesn't it. And so, um, you know, it's it's really a matter of getting back to the decision makers that that are going to approve the the, the management policies, the the grazing policies um, that are set forth that the the uh, 
uh, folks on the ground, the the uh, range management specialists within the BLM, how do they, what, you know, what policy manual do they follow? And it it really goes back to that level. We need to have that kind of discussion. Um, I believe that this report did a, did a great job of pulling up a lot of those uh, contradictions in how how uh, they're managing acreage now versus what the original intent was and where that authority is. So as far as a, a, an ask out of this report, I think the biggest one has been that compatibility analysis. They, that needs to be done before they uh, allow and go forward with um, issuing permits for a change of use. The other thing that's interesting is these change of use permits, um, number one, when the when the APR initially asked for uh, the 18 allotments and it went through the whole scoping period and the comments and so on, it was for the 18 allotments, not for a change. Then they sent an unofficial letter that, um, you know, it wasn't, it's not been signed off on by the agency or, or the APR itself that just said, okay, let's just dial this back. Well, I believe that's a new ask, which requires another scoping period, which we, you know, that needs to go through the process. So there's another specific concern about the, how this how this is moved forward. Um, the uh, the in the, you know in the in the bigger picture here, I think we're saying, you know, this is this is a specific concern we have with these six allotments that they're looking at now. But there's a precedence that can be set every time they make a decision and we feel that this is why we need to stand our ground on this so that um, it 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 doesn't allow this to be replicated over and over again across the west it we need to take the stand now and say no you know you've not followed the proper procedures and you need to do that at this point so ross originally with those 18 allotments uh, did they also request year-round grazing as well or, or or am i making that up in my mind no, no, that was in there. Yes, that was one of the one of the alterations from what's generally approved in uh, grazing uh, permits to the BLM. Now, there again, year-round grazing in and of itself, there are some that are allowed that. It's, it wouldn't be record-breaking uh, or, or record-setting or something in, in that, that there are some um, BLM leases that have year-round grazing, but by and large, they don't because the BLM has you know, an office full of range management specialists that use the science to go out and determine the quality of the range and are they managing it correctly because this is a resource held in trust for for all the folks in the United States, not just the, the rancher themselves. So that's part of the process. It's that mix between um, people having the the right to to graze on these lands and the responsibility to manage them appropriately. And that's here again, our, our point and request is that just because an organization comes in with a fancy name and plays a, uh, you know, plays up the conservation side of it doesn't mean that they really are going to conserve and manage these lands uh, in a way that's, that's healthiest and the most productive. Um, and that's really what they're called to do in, in the Taylor Grazing Act and, and so on is to, to manage them for sustained yield. And so that is a major factor in making these decisions. They removed that request for year-round grazing in what you consider a new proposal. Is that correct? 
No, no. The year-round oh. grazing is still in the okay. new proposal. It's okay. just they went they went from the eighteen allotments to six. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Thanks oh, for. I believe that's still in there. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. But uh, uh, is there any other cattle producers in in Phillips County that that you know of that have year-round grazing in that part of the U.S. for for cattle? Um. I don't know. Okay. That, that's an answer where, you know, I, there, I I can guarantee you that there's folks in our group that would give you that answer right off the top of their head, yeah, but okay. I'm not sure. Okay. I, I don't think it's common anyway if it is. But And I know there's going to be folks listening to this, Ross, saying, well, the state of Montana considers uh, bison livestock and uh, the, the, uh, the federal government in terms of the Taylor Grazing Act does not. So, I mean, that I, I can see where that is going to cause a lot of confusion because they could be on private property and considered uh domestic livestock and then if they're on a blm grazing permit they could be not considered livestock so um what 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 happens i guess if there is a change in policy that uh, then incorporates uh domestic livestock uh, or excuse me bison as a domestic livestock what what then changes in terms of management i guess is a question i know folks are probably thinking right now then as far as a as a blm grazing yes uh, lease yeah, let's just say the BLM does include bison as domestic livestock for grazing. Um, how does that impact then uh, the, the coalition's plan? Or is there still factors that come into, of course, year-round grazing for domestic livestock if it was bison? Well, first of all, that that change in definition would require congressional action. So it's a pretty big lift for that to actually happen on the federal level. Um However, it still doesn't negate them from demonstrating uh, multiple-use sustained yield concepts in, in that lease. So it would still require that. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, I, I guess I'm not looking at the what-ifs. I'm just looking at where are we okay. at right now. Where we're at right now is uh, these federal documents that give the authority to the – grant the authority to these agencies to manage the land um, do not consider them uh, – domestic livestock, which requires a special permit, which, by the way, uh, this permit is not a special permit. They, they've they just asked for it as if it's livestock. And so that's part of that in saying um, they did they did on this uh, redo uh, some of the previous permits they've done for buffalo. They just left them as cattle. Now they're actually putting them as indigenous, which is what they're supposed to be. But it really requires a special use permit, not just a uh, a standard grazing lease permit, so you know that's in part of our compat you know our, our our ask for the compatibility analysis is that this is done under um, a special use permit, and and so you know that that's a point that was made by the Montana Natural Resource Coalition that this specific um, ask needs to be. Um, asked in the proper fashion, which is as a special use permis, uh, permit for indigenous species, um, not just as a standard grazing permit for livestock. And I know you mentioned it's hard to answer a what-if question, but uh, uh, just uh, next week, uh, there's something going on. I think there's an election going on. I I don't know. I've got a lot of mailers and uh, TV commercials out there talking about this election. Um, No matter how that election plays out, you just hope whoever is the Secretary of Interior or the Secretary of Agriculture actually looks at this analysis that uh, your group has put together and that they actually just follow the law in the books. Yep, 
<laughs> that's a, that's a yes. Um, you know, definitely the the uh, um, culture of the agency can change depending on who's at the helm. Um, I do know since since I've been a county commissioner, which has just been six years now, so I'm just ending my first term. Um, there was a vast shift about two years in when this new administration came in, and all of a sudden we were getting um, invites to go to D.C. to meet with their um, intergovernmental – let me get the name right. It's the uh, Office of Inter Intergovernmental Affairs uh, uh, group or position there uh, in D.C., and, and their whole sole purpose was to provide a conduit from local government to the, to the White House, to the federal agencies, and – you know, like I said, I haven't been here as long as like my fellow, you know, one of my fellow commissioners who's, you know, in his uh, third term, fourth term. And uh, and so he's been at this a long time. And this has not been a, a normal um, outreach kind of thing for for the federal agencies, for the for the White House anyway. And this current administration has done that. And, and so I actually went back there a few years ago. Um, and we sat in and, and had uh, a, you know, kind of a one-on-one. -on -one. There was probably, uh, uh, I think there was three states represented, but mostly it was Montana county commissioners, mayors, city managers, um, you know, some local elected official, you know, like uh, state or state representatives um, that were in this body that went mad. And we met with the heads of, uh, you know, most of the agencies, um, and then they specifically gave us, you know, a, a phone number and an email to contact their liaison with us and those the heads of those agencies. Um, I guess the point is, is that the, the culture has been very good in the last four years for local government to actually um, be asked, you know, where they're sitting on specific issues dealing with federal agencies um, in their communities. And I feel like that's a very positive note for this current administration. There's no guarantee the next one would do that, um, but I would hope that they would maintain that kind of connection because I do believe that locally elected officials have a little tighter, you know, closer um, hand on the pulse of their community than the farther up the chain you go, just because we're here every day and we see our constituents every day. Uh, another question that, that I may throw at you right here is, um, Say, obviously, in Montana, on private property, bison is a, a domestic livestock. But how how do you rewild wildlife in, in this situation? That, that is a, that's a, 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 a sentence uh, that is a part of, uh, of, the, of this document. Uh, can, can you maybe talk about that aspect of these recommendations and, and the concerns that are right? that come up with wildlife rewilding? Well, that is definitely something that has had a lot of conversation, and I, I don't claim to be the expert on, you know, when something that, you know, at some point has been domesticated, how do you call it wild again? Um, but, you know, there's certainly been some moves to require um, you know, kind of the, the, the bloodline, you, you know, it can't have ever been owned if it's going to be wild within its, within its bloodline. And, um, you know, that limits dramatically when it comes to bison, you know, where do you, where do you find them? Um, but I, I do think that's something that, 
you know, needs to be discussed. The whole concept of, you know, actually taking bison and, and, and then legally turning them into wildlife. Um, the, you know, the APR has, is as of late anyway, claiming, oh, that's not our interest. Um, you know, they're going to consider them their livestock uh, as long as they're running the operation. But that is definitely a huge concern to um, producers on the ground because as a, you know, as a, you know, my family has a, a ranch uh, near Winifred, um, just off the Missouri River breaks, not far from the monument. And, you know, in the last 20 some years, the elk have really come back. Um, and now trying to manage and run an operation with, you know, hundreds, if not, you know, pushing, you know, a thousand or, or more roaming through your, your property, uh, you know, at inopportune times is very difficult, you know, between fencing and the loss of, of grazing and damage to, you know, your, your hay and, you know, you name it. Um, that's one thing. Now, picture that with bison. I have no idea. Again, we go back to the compatibility analysis. Um, it, it's, it needs to be required of federal agencies, and I believe that would be the same thing if if there was a move to um, deem buffalo wild in the same sense that, that elk and deer are considered wild and how they're managed. Um, it would be, to say the least, detrimental to agriculture production. Um, and, and certainly would, um, put, put some people out of business. There's no question, you know, depending on, you know, the, the populations and where it was centered. Um, I, I don't believe it would be possible to actually run, uh, a, you know, a cattle operation if you had large populations of free ranging wild bison, it, it, it just is not compatible in that fashion. So that's a question that comes down to, you know, the, the, Fish Wildlife Parks in the, the state of Montana, um, you know, in how we, you know, where we end up with with buffalo and whether that's, you know, whether we expand the wild bison herd um, beyond, you know, the Yellowstone Park herd. And then there's there is some in the uh, there's a few reservations with some wild bison. But um, I don't know. That's a, that's another big, big step. And as far as the focus of this. Um, report really was dealing mostly with federal agencies working within the laws on the books now. You mentioned uh, viability of rural communities. Agriculture is Montana's number one industry. And, uh, you know, I, I've heard folks uh, say, well, these ranchers just need to, to step up to the times and, and, and just let this process play out. But I don't think they look at all these, uh, the, the different aspects of uh, how it impacts the rural community, how it impacts small family businesses, and how it impacts food security. Because, again, we haven't had food insecurity since World War II. We saw the, 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 the chaos that ensued at the beginning of this pandemic when it comes to folks just trying to go to their grocery store and buy a product, uh, whether that be protein, beef, chicken, whatever it might be, in the, in the uh, backlog that occurred in our processing plants in, in the Midwest and in, in our feedlots. It is a food security issue as well, and also just the impact that agriculture has on our small rural communities. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it reminds me, a few years back, there was a 
a graduate student from uh, Arizona State University, stopped in the office because he was doing a, his his uh, graduate paper on uh, the the uh, rural uh, recreation in North Central Montana, um, and that was you know he was brought aware of it because of the APR situation, and it, he was wanting to research it, so he stopped in here to to just get my feel on it and to kind of get, you know, get some more input. And, you know, in our conversations, we talked a lot about who's out here and what we're doing and our concerns of this rewilding type initiative and, and so on and how that impacts uh, our, you know, our, our economy. And uh, he brought up, you know, he said, well, just kind of playing devil's advocate. They're saying that the population in these rural areas is, is, you know, slowly, you know, going away and, uh, you know, that you're seeing those numbers diminish. And so, you know, people are already leaving these areas. So, you know, maybe maybe it's already going to happen. And, you know, my comment to him was, well, there's a, there's a few factors here that you know, need to look at. Number one, Fergus County actually is, is a bit of an anomaly because we have had some population growth in the, the younger demographic. Um, which is contrary to a lot of what you see in different areas in Montana, but especially in sort of eastern central Montana. Um, so there's that, but it's also a point of yeah, if you if you look at you know the the populations for the past hundred years, there certainly was a, a sharp decline, um, but that's leveled off more or less in the last you know 30, 40 you know years. But the real question is, what are these people doing? Right? Okay, there's not as many people as there were. 75 years ago in these areas, but what are those people doing? And the answer is those people are growing food and fiber. That's what we do out here. And I said, you need to go and ask the real question, you know, how much food and fiber are we producing? And I, and I told them, you're going to find that the level of production um, in these areas is far higher now than when it, when there was uh, 75 years ago, when there was twice the population. So that really needs to be the question are we going to protect our food supply? Because that's what we do out here. We raise food for the nation. And, um, you know, there may be less people growing more food, but that just is a testament to the skill set and the ingenuity of the folks that live out here. Well, I think whether it's environmentalists or, or so-called conservation groups, I think they like to get on their stump and also talk about how agriculture degrades the land and uh, how they're going to improve the land and whatnot. And that's just a, that's a, a wide scoping statement I just made. But uh, when, when we look at this and the, the true environmentalists and the true stewards of the land are, are the farmers and ranchers out on these landscapes and whether it's public land or private land, a large majority, 99 out of 100, are going to make that land healthier and it's going to look better than when they first put cattle out on there. Um, again, we got to factor in drought and whatnot, but on those good growing years, that land is going to look good. It's going to be healthier for uh, the next year's growing season uh, on rangeland. And you know what? Wildlife love when that uh, old forage is grazed down and they can come in and eat that green grass as well. Everything benefits from good management of livestock grazing. It helps uh, decrease wildfires. We all know this. So how? what is your suggestion to livestock producers in, in, in talking about what they do and uh, educating themselves and sharing their message in an eloquent way to those who don't understand food and fiber production and land stewardship? Well, I, you know, I think um, 
that's been a battle that I, I think ag producers have, have dealt with my whole life in trying to, you know, impart to others what it really means to, you know, to, to be a producer, whether it's whether you're raising, you know, grain or you're raising cattle or, you know, whatever, whatever you're producing, how do you, how do you uh, link that to somebody that's not as involved? Because like we said, as, as ag becomes more efficient um, and it takes fewer people to grow more food, um, you have less actual people that have had that hands-on experience. Um, And I do think our, our, you know, ag uh, organizations have, you know, tried to, um, you know, bring that message to people. Um, It's a difficult one because people tend to be interested in what they're interested in. But I think it's it's something to not give up on. I think it's something we need to continually um, toot our horn and say, listen, you know, we really are important and we do important things out here. Um, And I guess that's why I tend to use the the national security argument when I talk about it, because I feel like a lot of people kind of understand that, you know, they don't like insecurity. And I think that's something that um, because there's been issues with food that is, that's imported, you know, especially processed foods from China where, you know, there's a lot of people going, Holy cow, do we really want to eat the stuff that's coming from China? Um, that's, that's why, and this is the time to point out. Listen, if if you if you support and 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 are a, a positive influence on protecting and helping to um, nurture ag production in the United States, you're not going to have to eat stuff from China. And I I think that's important. In fact, we really want to grow enough extra stuff we can send it to China to help with the. Uh, the imbalance on trade. I mean, right. That's part of the whole conversation is, um, you know, we're so efficient that at times we have, we have a surplus and we are able to, to help in our trade deficits that we have sometimes. So I guess I feel like I I always like to talk about food security um, in the same sense as, as energy security, that they're both national security issues and that we need to look at them in that light. Now, as we actually look at the recommendations that the coalition has put forward to the Department of Interior, the Secretary of Interior, the the head of U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and also USDA and all the different agencies, and actually a recommendation directly to uh, the president, uh, could you walk us through what those recommendations, what this summary is, and what we are seeking uh, on uh, page 31 of the 101-page document when, when we're looking at addressing the laws on the books when it comes to grazing. If you distill it down, it goes back to the, to, to the basic point that we had started with, which is we're just asking that these agencies um, review how they you know, make their decisions and be sure that it matches with the, the intent of the reservations on these lands. And, and you know, we use that word land reservation for a purpose because it's something that was really i guess it was new to me to think of it in those terms that when when the federal government reserves land for something you need to think along the lines of other reservations that have a lot of authority like native american reservations they are reserved for a very specific purpose and they have a lot of authority you can't just up and change that reservation to some other purpose and that's kind of our point that we're making. Um, you know, when you look through this page 31, it says recommendations and it says things like um, 
you know, repurposing of CVG, and CVG is chiefly valuable for grazing designations. These are designations gone through, but these repurposings of CVG districts for wildlife rewilding um, is not contemplated by the chiefly valuable for grazing district classification system, right? It's, it's saying, listen, you're trying to do something that was never intended on these to begin with, so you need to go back and, and look at the law and make sure you're following it. And, you know, and I, I, you know, I guess this goes back to, you know, why, why America is, is different in, in who we are as a nation. And that is that we're a representative republic, which is ruled by laws, not by people. And, and that's the point. Nobody's above the law. You need to follow the law. And if you don't like the law, then you need to go through the process to change it. You know, those steps are all there. There's ways of doing what you want to do. This report goes back and says, listen, we're not saying that the APR can't raise or can't run bison um, on these on these, you know, their their uh, allotments. They just have to go through the right process to to determine that it's compatible. Now, the side note is, is I don't know that they're going to be able to determine that what they want to do is compatible, but there is a road for them to do it appropriately. And that's our ask. You know, please, you know, BLM. You need to look at what the what the roadmap is for approving this allotment change, and you need to follow it. and And so that's that that's what that whole page says there. And in the recommendations is, you need to follow the rules that are in place. That's it in a nutshell. Well, and I will say one thing: it, it is great to see rural communities come together because this report, uh, no public funds. It, it says that right on the report were used in uh, the creation of this document. Uh, this all came from business owners, uh, farmers, and ranchers, and the ag economy is not great either. So when a producer can take a few pennies and put towards uh, the, the future of uh, livestock grazing in the state, I mean, that uh, that is commendable. Um, but maybe, I guess, Ross, what happens if the law is not followed over the next few years? I know this is another what if. Is is does legal proceedings need to be brought up? Well, that's that's the process, is it not? You know, if if um, if you find that uh, uh, a federal agency is not following the rules, right? If they're not if they're not you know uh, paying attention to or or they're ignoring the specific uh, process that was laid out for them, and you've exhausted all your means to um, have input and it doesn't follow, then, then that's the next step. And, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, generally from the, and I'll just, you know, try not to be too political, but from the conservative side, you don't see a lot of groups suing the federal government, right? You know, we, that's not in our nature, but the conservation side, I mean, ask, ask any, uh, forest management guy, (laughs) Their biggest fear every time they try to do any sort of um, management of of timber, and it's the lawsuits. Mm-hmm. We try not to, you know, that's that's not our first step. Our first step is say, hey, I think uh, we're, you know, assuming we're all reasonable people working in good faith, let's look at what the rules are, and we can handle this uh, the way it should be handled. And uh, and I'm still going to hold out for that. I, you know, I think that, uh, you know, the that the the folks that are making these decisions are going to, you know, be contemplative about 
you know, what we've pointed out. I mean, we, you know, you've got the, you've got the report there, but, you know, most of the report are just reprints of documents, you know, Taylor Grazing Act, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, different uh, solicitors, uh, opinions and, you know, the FLIPMA and whatever. They're just, they're specific federal documents that, that point to the process and the, and the proper way to handle it. Um, and that was part of it. You know, I think oftentimes people go, I mean, I hear that people come in here to our office and have a beef because there's something they don't like. Very seldom do they come in and say, this isn't happening the way I think it should be. And here's the roadmap. This is how we can do it right. Right. Most times, and, and that's just human nature, we can see there's a problem, but do we do the work to figure out what's the proper procedure? What's the what's possible? How can we fix this this problem? And and that's what the Save the Cowboy folks did. They ponied up the money. They came together. They they found some experts to, to work with them to provide a roadmap for these federal agencies so that when they make decisions, they're doing it um, appropriately. And so that's where this document's about. It's not just pointing out the issue, but it's also pointing out the proper procedure to do it right. For our friends uh, tuning into this, uh, how can they read this document? Is there a way they can read an online well, format? Well, uh, the Save the Cowboy uh, Facebook page is out there. They're putting together a website, and um, this document will be on the website uh, hopefully in the next week or so. Um, however, if you know if you're uh, um, if you don't know somebody that's a part of the group, uh, you can always get a hold of uh, me here at the at the uh, Fergus County Commissioner's Office, and I can email you out a copy if you'd like one. Perfect. Well, Ross Butcher, we, we covered quite a lot, and uh, and like you said, uh, th- this document is largely <laughs> uh, executive orders, laws that have been on the land for over 100 years or close to 100 years, and, and the request is just to, to follow the law um, when, when it comes to these uh, public lands grazing and uh and uh, I would encourage anyone, if, if they have any uh, inquiries about what this is about, to, to take a, a gander at it and uh, check out that Save the Cowboy Facebook page as well. Ross, I, I know it's a busy day, and we've been talking not, not quite an hour, but close to it. Uh, any last uh, comments or anything you'd like to share with our, our listeners here today? Um, I just appreciate the opportunity to you know kind of give voice to our concerns here in our little corner of Montana and just let everybody know that this this isn't just about one little region and the impact. This really is about um, a national push, uh, really an international push for rewilding of lands. And we need to be very cautious and contemplative about what that means um, before you just wholesale, uh, you know, jump in on on that side because it sounds good. You need to really do your research because every decision has impacts and and uh, sometimes they aren't what you expect. So. Uh, but I, I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. And, and like I said, I'm uh, doors always open if anybody wants to uh, talk about it. Hey, thank you for taking the time today again, Ross Butcher. He is president of the Montana Natural Resources Coalition and also a county commissioner in Fergus County, Montana, in the heart of Montana. Again, friends, thanks for tuning in and joining the agriculture conversation here on the Lancaster Ag Podcast. I'm Lane Nordland. We'll catch you next time.